Chapter 13 I knocked on a few more doors. Either no one was home, or they weren't answering. I considered what Duval had said about the barriers to finding information in this neighborhood. He'd given me little D's number. I could probably afford to use him. William Jackson had agreed to pay me a healthy retainer, plus expenses to defend his niece. Even so, I wasn't going to fork over money to have someone else do what I could manage on my own. At least not yet. And, bad as this area was, how much worse could it be than Bed-Stuy in the 70s? Rochelle Watson lived on the other side of Iverson Mall in a cross-hatched network of streets near Marlow Heights Park. Another inside the Beltway enclave of old brick houses with big trees. The area wasn't much different than working-class neighborhoods in other parts of the country. Apart from low-end retail stores on the nearby highway, the prevalence of rust-bucket cars and the worn-around-the-edges look of some residences, you'd never know you were in the hood. As I made my way up the walk, I had the familiar feeling of eyes focused on me. Eyes behind window shades and curtains. Two elderly women in porch rockers had stared as my car cruised by. I peered down the street to see if they were still watching me. They'd probably gone inside to talk about me. Sure, and the CIA and the FBI were probably monitoring me through field glasses. My paranoia was becoming ridiculous. The woman who answered my knock looked like she'd just rolled out of bed, and it was almost three o'clock. She could have worked, or possibly played, nights. She had short, blunt-cut black hair around a thin face with a sallow complexion. After establishing that she was Tanya Watson, Rochelle's mother, I introduced myself and asked for Rochelle. She took my card and blinked at it. Rochelle ain't here, she said, sounding listless. Tina Jackson said she was here with your daughter the night Shanae died. Can you verify that? Shanae, she snorted. She lucky she lived as long as she did. She could rub a person the wrong way, I said, in a shameless bid to ingratiate myself. Heifer ain't gonna rub nobody anyway no more. Her eyelids drooped as if she were fighting to stay awake. The cause was probably more than sleep deprivation. Tanya had the look of a heroin addict in mid-buzz. Her long-sleeved shirt probably hid track marks. Last Wednesday night... Do you remember if Tina was here with Rochelle and some friends? I wondered what her memory would be worth. I heard a toilet flush, and an older woman, rounder than Tanya, came creaking down the stairs. She walked up behind Tanya and peered over her shoulder, making Tanya appear two-headed. My niece ain't feeling right, the older woman said. Could this wait? It's okay, Aunt Louise. Tanya said, pronouncing it aunt in that way that always sounds like an affectation to me. I'll talk to her now. She widened her eyes as if forcing them open. Aunt Louise noticed the card Tanya held and snatched it from her. Looking it over, she said, Well, if you gonna talk, why don't you invite this lady inside? It felt like deja vu, gox from the neighbors, followed by the once-over at the door, then an invitation inside. 
I began to regret my decision when I got a good look at the place. Tanya didn't share Mrs. Mallory's neat-as-a-pin housekeeping ways. The women led me down a short hallway, its walls smudged with fingerprints and mysterious brown stains, to a living room crammed with furniture. Along one wall, a green velveteen sofa was wedged up against a blue love seat, leaving barely enough space for a recliner upholstered in a variation of brown plastic. The Salvation Army rejects faced a large-screen plasma TV, probably being paid for on the forever-and-a-day installment plan with no payments due the first year. Either that, or the TV was so hot you'd get third-degree burns if you touched it. Roaches scampered up the walls and made drunken circles near the ceiling. I glanced down and caught a few lumbering across the burnt orange carpet. Would you like something to drink? Coffee? Water? Aunt Louise asked in a good hostess tone. No thanks, I'll keep this short, I promised. Real short. I perched on the edge of the brown recliner, poised to stomp any roaches that trespassed near me. I had asked about last Wednesday. Were Tina and Rochelle here? Yeah, they were here. I saw them come in, Tanya said. What time was that? Let me think. I think it was before dinner. Tanya's eyelids drooped again and she doubled over at the waist, nodding toward her lap. I looked at her aunt, who shook her head. She got up, grabbed Tanya's shoulders, and maneuvered her into a reclining position on the sofa. Tanya offered no resistance. I rose to help and was rebuffed. Leaving Tanya to her narcotic dreams, Louise motioned for me to follow her into the kitchen. The dingy yellow appliances matched the curtains. Louise lowered herself into a chair next to a speckled formica-topped table. I took the seat near hers, averting my eyes from the roach convention on the counter and checking my immediate surroundings for strays. I begged her to join a program, Louise said, but will she? No. She keeps shooting up that junk. All I can do is come by when I can and make sure she and the kids are okay. You could report her to social services, I thought, but kept quiet. Louise might have viewed it as a betrayal rather than a way to help Tanya. Besides, if Aunt Louise wasn't volunteering to raise the kids, who would? And who knows if they would be better off in the system than under the care of their own mother? From my brief observation, it appeared that Tanya was managing with her aunt's help. Managing? My inner devil's advocate piped up. You call that managing when your own daughter is in a girl gang? But I could see the other side, too. How is taking her away from her mother going to change that? I squelched these thoughts and continued questioning the aunt. Were you here last Wednesday? I asked. Can you tell me if Tina was here with Rochelle and some other girls? I was here, but I didn't get here till late. I come over and had to call 911. Tanya OD'd? No, she didn't take her insulin. She was falling out like she was high, but it was cousin not taking her meds. So I called 911 and went with her to the hospital. I wondered if that was true or just a story for the medics. What time was this? Did you see any of the girls? 
She shook her head. I guess it was a bit after nine, and I didn't see no girls. If they was here, they was downstairs in Rochelle's room, but there's no way to know for sure. Why is that? Even if they came home before dinner, whenever that was, if they was downstairs, they could have left any time through the basement door. Damn, scratch one alibi. The sun was low in the sky when I left Tanya Watson's place. There was a chill and the acrid smell of burning firewood in the air. I started up the Mustang and sat shivering while the car warmed up. I should have brought a coat. Autumn, with its warm days and cool nights, always threw me off. What now? It was too late to knock on more doors, too late to visit people, too late to be in this neighborhood. Shit, my childhood neighborhood was worse than this. I looked around. In the gloom, the houses looked depressingly old. The big old trees seemed to harbor shadow and menace. I thought about bed again and wondered how I'd survived my nine years there. I got to the office at six. Sheila, the receptionist for Kressler & Associates, the accounting firm where I sublet space, was packing it in for the day. You got a visitor, she growled. In her seventies, Sheila wore her gray hair in an efficient bun. She seemed to be growing increasingly terse with age, as if talking too much would squander whatever breath was left in her body. A walk-in. Haven't had one of those in a while. This guy said it was about a case you're working on. She squinted and lowered her voice. He's a big, tall, black man. Sound familiar? I'm not sure. I thought of William Jackson. I wondered if he'd come by to make an in-person pitch toward his cause for becoming Tina's guardian. Would you say he's in his late thirties or early forties? More like mid to late twenties, if you ask me, but black people fool me on their ages all the time. She paused and added, Oh, excuse me, make that African-American people. She rolled her electric blue eyes, as if you ever heard one black person refer to themselves as such. I laughed. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. So, you want me to stick around? I know her question was well intended, but it grated. Was she asking because it was a man, or because he was black? No, no, go on home. Okay, she said in her four-pack-a-day contralto and grabbed her purse. Good night. I wished her good night and trumped up the steps. My office door was open. I prefer it that way during business hours. I didn't want clients to feel they had to wait for me in the public area downstairs. Nothing had ever been stolen, so it worked out fine. I'd locked my office before leaving for the night, a mere after-hours formality. One more barrier beyond the front door for a would-be burglar. I stepped into the office and understood Sheila's concern. A huge man sat hunched in my guest chair, dwarfing it. When he saw me, he unfolded himself and got up. He towered over me. Solidly built, his body was supported by tree trunks for legs. I wondered if he'd been a linebacker in a former life. He grinned as if he was pleased with himself. Not in a threatening or condescending way. Damned if he didn't have freckles sprinkled across his coppery face. Sam McRae, 
His voice rumbled in the subwoofer range, and he extended his hand, which enveloped mine like a catcher's mitt. I'm Darius Wilson, he said, but you can call me Little D. I think you'll want to hear what I have to say.